I'm going to invite Larry and Jorgen up. They're going to read for us Psalm 35, 1 through 10, and then we'll get after it. Thank you, gentlemen. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuer. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like calves before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid the nets for me. Without cause they dig a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then I saw where we joined in the Lord. Exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Father, thank you for today. I pray that you'd bless the speaker. Help us see ourselves as poor and weak and to look to you for our protection and our strength. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. So if you'd like a title, uh, Telling God Crazy Things, or subtitle, or alternate title, that's really in the Bible, and theologians are all over the place on this one, and Am I supposed to pray in the same way? And you really disagree with C.S. Lewis on the imprecatory psalms and how they're to be utilized in life today? Wow, that's a long title, is the title. Psalm 35 is the text, but the theme that we're going over today as we continue our journey through the psalms is the difficult words and requests that we find in this book, uh, The Psalter. For your Jeopardy board, uh, what are... The imprecatory psalms is this collections of prayers and poems that are asking God to do some wild things towards primarily God's enemies. What do you do with them? Uh, imprecatory, the word, has a Latin root from 1600 English, and Merriam-Webster says to invoke evil on or to curse. And I enjoyed this this week, uh, Merriam-Webster puts it in a sentence, and the sentence is, with her dying breath, the witch imprecated the villagers with, for their relentless persecution of her. I found that fun. Um, usage throughout time. Here's a picture, I think, um, of Google. Have you ever looked at the engram? They, 
survey all sorts of books and show you a word's usage over time. So I don't know what was going on around 1650, 1775, 6, but that was a peak usage of the word imprecatory. Um, and it's, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an analyst here, but it looks like it might be making a comeback. <laughs> At least after, after this week, uh, there's going to be a little bit more usage. You get bonus points if you use it in normal conversation this week. The worst sermon I heard in a long time was on the imprecatory psalms. Yeah. So what we've seen so far in Psalm chapter 1, or in Psalms is this. Chapter 1 is the entry point. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. That's the entry point. This trust in God and the blessing that comes in relationship with him. And then as you read the next 150 psalms, what you see is they are prayers, poems, songs that cover the whole range of human life. They deal with suffering and delight. They deal with darkness and repentance. Uh, Mike's teaching next week on how they, they send God's people out on mission to all the world. But there's a lot in these 150 psalms. And many of them include calls or curses on enemies of David, of enemies of God, and God's people. Have you ever read them? What feelings are elicited when you go through those particular passages in Psalms? You thought it strange as a modern human for somebody to use such language, even as we saw this morning. I mean, look again at Psalm 35. The psalmist is asking God, calling God to contend, to fight, to take hold to draw out a spear and a javelin, to let these people be put to shame and dishonored, to let them be turned back, be like chaff before the wind. I, I don't know why my brain loves particularly. Let their way be dark and slippery. Okay. Be ensnared by a net. Let them fall into destruction. And I'll be honest, I was looking to be kind to Larry and Jorgen uh, in that I did not pick the craziest passage for you all, or passages, but since we're here, <laughs> Psalm chapter 69, or the 69th Psalm, I guess they aren't technically chapters, verse 22 through 25 says this, let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. I just imagine like a, a dining room table where everybody's enjoying all of a sudden being, you know, transformed into a bear trap. That's what I get. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and this make their loins tremble continually. I spent too much time looking at that verse, and nobody agrees on what it actually means. If I was a junior higher, this would be a verse I would be memorizing and using with my parents. Just because that's what I did as a kid. Memorize oddball verses in the Bible and use them at inappropriate times with my parents. 
Let their loins tremble continually. Fun fact, Paul quotes this exact psalm in Romans 11, and he changes let their loins tremble continually to let their backs be bent. So I don't know if Paul, I, again, I'm not going to go there, but loins tremble continually. How many times can I say that? Pour out your indignation on them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. But wait, there's more. Psalm chapter 58, verse 6 through 9. <laughs> oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like <laughs> this snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. And then probably the most intense of them all, Psalm 137, 8 through 9. O daughters of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's in the Bible. Let's pray. <laughs> so what we're going to do this morning is this. Uh, what's going on? What are the imprecatory psalms? Why are they here? What do they teach us about God, prayer, and ourselves? How do they or do they point us to Christ and how could or should we utilize them today? That's the theme. That's where we're heading. So first, what are they? First and foremost, they are prayers. These psalms, these imprecatory psalms are prayers. And furthermore, they're honest prayers with eyes and heart wide open to the entirety of human existence. They're written by people in a real place, in a real time, experiencing the real horrors of human existence and speaking, praying, singing to God about that. And I think before I and we rush to judgment about them, we have to check our own chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis says, our own pride, our own present moment in formation that may at first glance... Uh, waffle at this a little bit, hesitate with this, and, and put on a, a posture of understanding and learning. We're more comfortable with when we're upset, we just go to the internet and rage. Leave a bad Yelp review for some restaurant person thing, whatever. We're experts at holding deep, long-lasting resentments within our hearts. And I think the psalmist here shows us a better way. This was the world of the ancient Near East. The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology says in the ancient Near East, in general, life was dominated by the need to cope with the terrifying threat of curses and omens. This kind of language is very common with what the world was then. 
And if you read any amount of history, both modern and ancient, what you see is that it has always been horrific and difficult and painful. People have always terrorized people and done horrible things to people. We've seen that in our time. If you read any sort of history, you see that on repeat again and again and again. Where there are people, there are problems, and there is a perpetuation of evil against one another. And we find in this central collection of prayer and worship, there's requests for God to deal with darkness, injustice, and enemies. To deal with life as it really was and really still is. That's what they are. Why are they here? The easiest answer, because God put them here. That's the easiest answer. Maybe a more complex one that is a little bit harder to grasp is that we need them. They're here because God put them here. And I think the, the more complete answer is he knew we would need them. We need language that articulates and gives avenues to the wide range of human life in a world not as it should be. There's a song that went uh, very popular a handful of years ago in the church, uh, Is He Worthy? And the first line of it had some sort of resonance within the human heart. It says, do you feel the world is broken? And the congregation says, we do. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. We need a language that articulates and gives avenues for the wide range of human life in the world, not as it should be. Walter Brueggemann says this about the Psalms. The Psalms explore the full gamut of human experience from rage to hope. Indeed, it would be very strange if such a robust spirituality lacked such a dimension of vengeance, for we would conclude that just at the crucial point, robustness had turned to cowardice, and propriety. So he's saying, if the Psalms were just neat, fluffy songs, I love you, Lord. You're so great. You're so wonderful. And that's all it was. It, it wouldn't be giving a full accounting of life as it actually is. But God is gracious to give us a glimpse into the entirety of human existence. Peter Lightheart, a biblical scholar, says... Imprecations are appeals to the judge of the earth to play the part of judge. And if Psalms show us nothing else, they show us this. Go to God with where you are, with what you're dealing with, with what you're seeing. Go to God. I realize in a room like this, on a morning like this, not all of us are necessarily feeling the imprecatory psalms. That's not the uh, description of our existence today. And thank God for that. We live in a very privileged place and position. But some of you are going through some stuff. Some of you have experienced a wrongness in life. Some of you are experiencing and can resonate with that idea that there are enemies of your soul that are against you, what do you do with that? There's language for it. 
Followers of God historically have sought to live into his story in asking God to do what only he can do. The psalmist is living consistently within the law that says, restrain yourself against vengeance. Do not take matters into your own hand. And instead of that outlet of taking vengeance, the avenue becomes prayer. So what do they teach us then about God, prayer, and ourselves? Well, the first thing I think is this, that I think we've been trying to say this entire series, is God is okay with us bringing every range of emotion to him. There isn't a particular formula that you have to follow in prayer. Though often many of us uh, can feel that sense that due to a variety of reasons, our family of origin, church tradition, we feel like we have to have the right words in the right order and follow the right formula or else, you know, it's just going to hit the ceiling and not get up to the proverbial whatever heaven in the sky out there. Psalms show us that's not the case. They say wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, go to God with that. And God is big enough to handle Anything, any language, you throw his way. He's okay with that. He seems to be a God that calls his people towards restraint when it comes to vengeance, but he isn't about repression of emotions. So, yes, there's verses, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Do not take matter into your own hands. Do not return evil for evil. But he's not about us just simply repressing the wrong that is done towards us or the wrong that is in the world. God hears, he knows, and he promises to work often in a different timeline than our own. And so the Psalms help align our hearts with that. And there is a line of argument that some of you may hold, and that's fine, that these aren't healthy, these aren't helpful, uh, and if you are of that conviction, then you can put C.S. Lewis in your corner, because he says this. We must not either try to explain them away or to yield for one moment to the idea that because it comes in the Bible, all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good and pious. We must face both facts squarely, the hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. And also, we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it. These prayers of the psalmist are indeed devilish. That was C.S. Lewis's take on it. And so, according to C.S. Lewis, this morning, I'm wicked and devilish. And the good news is we uh, can let God decide that in the end. Maybe he's right. However, as I look at the entirety of the story, I, I disagree. Not that David was perfect and pious. Uh, if you need a sermon on that, go back to last week. Anthony, Psalm 51, David's sin and adultery and murder. The Bible goes to great lengths to show that there's only one hero in the book, and his name is Jesus, and all the rest are pretty well messed up just like us. But in seeing that, there's something in the Psalms that, that 
these prayers have the ability to break that streak in people. The reason I find it that way and disagree with C.S. Lewis is one particular story where two or three weeks ago we looked at David writing a psalm in the cave of Adullam where he's by himself and then he gets kind of surrounded by this ragtag group of people where a couple chapters later he finds himself yet again in a cave yet this time he has the opportunity to take vengeance against Saul who had been pursuing him and attempting to murder him for years. And so Dave is, Dave, David is hiding in a cave with his people, and all of a sudden Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself, and his men are going, there he is, kill him. Now's your chance. You can become king. We can put an end to this whole nonsense of running all over, uh, you know, the desert. Do it. You have full right to do it. And what does David do? He doesn't kill Saul. He trims off some of his robe. Uh, and then shows it to him, and he says this in 1 Samuel 24, verse 12 through 15. David says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So my proposition, my theory, is that if these psalms were coming from an evil, wicked, devilish heart, David would have killed Saul when he had the chance. And, at least in the state of Arizona, he would have been within his full rights of self-defense and castle doctrine and all that. I'm going out on a limb. My dad's a prosecutor, so, <laughs> you know. Am I wrong? No. So, see? So David, in experiencing real life, real evil, real enemies had within his quote-unquote rights to take a life in self-defense. Did he? No. And again, you can fast forward and go, David's not perfect. He killed Uriah, and that was a different story. And again, we have a sermon for that. You can look at it last week. I'm not trying to whitewash David at all. But in the midst of his struggle against real enemies looking to take his real life, he withheld. How? I think the Psalms give us the answer. There's something that happens when we go to God with our pain, with our hurt, with the things that dwell within us when we're interacting with real enemies and real pain, and it does something in a soul. David released to God and resisted the temptation to take things into his own hands. And I believe that these psalms teach us a pathway into prayer to release us from hatred and personal vengeance into the trust of God when it comes to justice. And ultimately, I think these psalms point us to Christ and that scripture is one continuous story. And within the New Testament, it doesn't, and Jesus doesn't shy away from evil and injustice, but shows how it's going to be dealt with. 
One pastor, Harry Manega, says the New Testament appears not in the least embarrassed with the Old Testament imprecations. On the contrary, it quotes freely from them as authoritative statements with which to support an argument. The New Testament not only quotes passages which, though themselves not imprecations, are found in a psalm with an imprecatory section, but also, and this is more remarkable, it quotes with approval of the imprecations themselves. So the Bible's one continuous story pointing to Jesus. David and the authors of these psalms are looking forward towards redemption. If you break down the Bible in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. David is looking for the redemption of Israel, the redemption of God's people for Messiah to come. And we look back and remember that work that Jesus has accomplished and long forward to when he makes all things new. Uh, I asked my friend Armin this week, who's here, uh, if you want a deeper dive on anything in the Bible, he's your man. He's got a PhD. And I said, what's your, what's your take on the imprecatory psalms? And he goes, what do you mean? And just tell me about them, because I'm preaching a sermon. And I wasn't planning on going into this, but he did. And what Armin gave me in about two minutes was so helpful, even about Psalm 137 of the babies being crushed. He goes, you could thread a theme of in Genesis 3 when there's a promise that the offspring of the serpent will be crushed. There's this, again, this theme of offspring. Uh, then Babylon becomes this image of evil. And so in Psalm 137, you have this theme of offspring of Babylon being dealt with. And then if you look to the book of Revelation, you see Babylon as the embodiment of evil. He said it way more um, clearly and helpfully uh, than I do. But you see that being dealt with fully and finally in the book of Revelation. So if you see it, there's this promise that is thread through of how God is going to deal with evil and its offspring, how it's going to be dealt with. And the Bible uses this kind of imagery for it. And I go, that's helpful. And then I'm typing. I'm like, mm, my friend Armin, I put it in there. And so you see this theme all throughout Scripture of evil and injustice in this longing and looking to the God who will one day fully deal with it. And so Jesus came into creation, and he begins the work of reversing the curse and dealing with injustice. And if you take the story for what it is, it is really remarkable in how Jesus goes about redemption, how Jesus goes about dealing with injustice. Because you see with the disciples that he puts around him, they are very much like David's men. You see a couple of them, when people don't receive Jesus, being like, hey, let's call down fire from heaven on them. Let's murder them all. That would be awesome. And Jesus is like, no. This is, again, my translation. That wouldn't be awesome. Peter takes out his sword looking to defend and, and you know, cuts off the servant's ear, Malchus's ear. Jesus says, put the sword away. So how does Jesus deal with injustice? He doesn't drive out Rome. But he takes on injustice through suffering love. 
that's how Jesus deals with injustice, with suffering love. And in that, he teaches us to pray with a formula that in some ways follows the Psalms and reorients us through reminding us of who rules and reigns in this world and how he holds that authority. In the book, War Psalms of the Prince of Peace, James Adams says, to pray thy kingdom come is to invoke divine judgment on all other kingdoms and all those who oppose the reign of God. When we pray as Jesus taught us, we cry out to God for his blessings upon his church and for his curses upon the kingdom of the evil one. And you're like, oh, we've been praying that for weeks. I didn't realize I was praying that. Surprise! But this is woven into the fabric of the entire biblical story. That there is real injustice and evil in the world. God, his people, our souls have a real set of enemies that exist. And they're going to be fully and finally dealt with by God in his bringing judgment and justice one day fully and finally. And our call if we're going to be a people of love, is to entrust that into his hands as we work for and live for love and justice in the world today. So how could we or should we utilize these today? I think one of the most important things for all of life is to remember where we are in the story, to remember where we are and when we are. We're in this awkward in-between of redemption through the cross and resurrection and longing for full restoration of all things in the new heavens of new earth. In new earth, we find ourselves in that in-between where the kingdom of God is ruling and reigning and justice is going forth through the four corners of the earth and there's evil and suffering and injustice in enemies of God and his people still today. So we look back remembering and we long forward hoping in the return of Christ. And we don't have to avoid these psalms. We don't have to assume anything. We can't engage in these psalms. And they give us an avenue of how to deal with injustice in the world. The injustice that's been done against you. The injustice that you and I have committed. This is part of the life of God's people in church. Again, the, the idea of confession and lament and, and longing for justice in these kinds of ways has largely been lost, especially in the American church, uh, because we want primarily positive, inspiring, feel-good kind of things. That's just what we've been wired for, and so we come to church often looking for that type of experience because these things make us uncomfortable, and too often we equate uncomfortable with not good when that's not the reality, the discomfort of lament reorients us again to see how the world actually is. And it should free us to see ourselves as we actually are. Broken in needing of grace and trusting that God is either going to bring justice one day fully through judgment, or the cross is big enough to deal with it all. 
And so we are called to pray based on the promises of God to see this story, to remember where we are, to remember when we are, to remember who we are, and then remember who God is and what he's accomplished. I saw a uh, post, I guess it's not a tweet anymore, a post on, that's confusing, the X, Twitter, this guy Chad Bird, anyways, he says this, when you approach God in prayer, don't think of a majestic, almighty, old man in the clouds. Picture a man with scars of suffering, eyes that have wept, ears that have heard hate, a mouth that's hungered, a heart that's bled. There's no more sympathetic listener than Christ. And so as we close, I want you to think about a few things. First, the wrongs that you have committed against others. How do you deal with that regret and pain and shame? And I say that looking in the mirror. How do you deal with that? The wrong you've done this week, last week, a year ago. How can we live as a free people with that? And then, think about the wrong that's been done to you. The people that have perpetuated evil on your life. That have ruined dreams and goals. That have turned the entire trajectory of your life around. Not for the better. Oh, and again, we'll get to the God works all things together for those who love. Yes, but the people that have really wronged you, what do you do with that? Most pathways for that are shame and resentment. And so for our own sin that we've committed, we're a people that are covered often in shame, guilt, and regret. And then for the evil that's been perpetuated against us, we are a people that are expert at festering in resentment and holding the wrong that people have done against us as though kind of it's, you know, Gollum and Lord of the Rings are precious, and it dehumanizes us as we hold on to it. What if there's a better way? God, I hope there's a better way. And we see in the gospel there is. That Jesus takes through the cross the wrong that you've done and says, if you trust me, I grant you righteousness, freedom, hope, and joy. You don't have to be defined by the sins of your past. You're free. And as we receive that, does it not then do something about how we see everybody else in the world? God, help us. We don't want to be like that wicked, unforgiving servant that Jesus gives the parable of who receives a blessing and pardon from the judge and then goes and wrings the neck of somebody else who owes him. But aren't we often like that in our hearts? And so we have to receive the freedom that Jesus gives us through the cross to break patterns of sin and bondage and shame 
And then that frees us then to deal with real evil and not, again, whitewash and pretend as though it never happened. No, some of us are going to carry wounds forever and we're praying them, attempting to go, God, would you at least make it a scar because it's festering and it's infected and it hurts. I'm not saying to pretend those things never happened, but I'm saying there's a place to go and prayers to pray that Jesus would either save or judge, that he'd either uh, redeem those people or he'd deal with them fully and finally. And where we see ourselves in the story, it goes, okay, I'm going to wait on him. And until that day where he makes all things new and sorts through it all, I'm going to wait on him. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to offer up forgiveness, and I'm going to lay down resentment, and I'm going to lay down my shame, and I'm going to receive Jesus of who he is and what he's actually accomplished. We can be released from resentment and desire for personal retribution, which is different than justice. This isn't opposed to longing for the justice of God. And we'll see and receive Christ for who he is and what he's accomplished. This isn't going to be on the screen. But it comes to mind. Here's what the cross has accomplished. Colossians chapter number 2. In him... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we see this collection of prayers that can make us feel uncomfortable and unsure of what to do with them, and we thank you that they ultimately point to you as the one who judges fully and finally, freeing us from our imperfect assessments of ourselves and others, and leading us towards trust and life and faith. So God, where we have sinned, we ask that you would forgive us. Where we've been sinned against, we ask that you would free us from unhealthy resentment, desires of personal retribution, an unhealthy longing for control. And you would teach us how to pray in the midst of those things. God, we, with the psalmists and writers of Scripture, lament how things are 
But there's so much evil and injustice and wickedness in this world. We want to be a people that actively work in love towards your kingdom, towards your rule, towards your reign. And so help us to catch a vision of what that looks like. To live out this faith, not just simply in word, but in deed. And so may your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.